Amen. Let's open our Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're in the second sermon in this series called The Making of a Leader. I call this series The Making of a Leader because we're not going to trace all of David's biography. We're actually just looking at the time in David's life from shepherd boy to where he ascends to become the king of Israel. Last week we looked at chapter 16, the call of David, and I want to remind you of his anointing by just reading chapter 16, verse 13. Now just before that, the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And verse 13 picks up and says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. What I find interesting as you examine the story of David is there is a season of David's ministry where he is a king without a crown. He's received the anointing of the Lord, the calling of God, and yet he doesn't have that physical symbol of leadership, the crown on his head. Now, we know with God's call that God has placed a call. Sometimes the call is special, meaning there can only be one king of Israel. So right now it's Saul and David will eventually become the king of Israel. But every believer has a general call from God. Uh, when you were called to follow Jesus, that was your call upon your life. Follow Jesus and grow to look more like Jesus. Now, after David's anointing, we're going to see uh, something that's very true for all of us when we receive that call from God and start following him. Often, when you get the call from God, conflict comes with it. You might think that David has this anointing from Samuel and everything's a bed of roses from there. It just gets easier. He becomes the king. You have this golden era and everything's good. But really, what you see in the life and story of David is the anointing brings with it conflict. As we enter into 1 Samuel 17, he's going to face one of his greatest challenges. But what he does in this story is he casts a vision that, a vision that, that ultimately tells us why David was great and what led to his greatness. And it's a vision that if we too ca- catch it and follow our lives according to it, will lead to us fulfilling the call that God has for us. So we're going to make our way through chapter 17. It's 58 verses. I'm not going to read the whole story to you this morning. I will summarize parts of it, read parts of it. And we're going to look at this story, David and Goliath, a very familiar story. So we pick up the story. And right away in chapter 17, Israel is quaking in fear. They're at the Valley of Eli. It's some 12 to 14 miles west of Bethlehem. And you have to understand that the champion Goliath that is presented to Israel is, well, he's someone that would have instilled fear in quite a few people. He comes forward and he asks Israel to engage in what is called representative combat, meaning we'll pick one person from our army, and I'm the one person from our army, and the two will come out and fight, and it's a winner-takes-all contest. Listen to the description of this Goliath. Goliath 
whose height was six cubits in a span, meaning he's nine feet, six inches tall. Okay, just imagine standing next to Goliath for just a moment. He's massive. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 126 pounds. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, javelin bronze shoulder between his shoulders. Uh, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 15 pounds. So just imagine that piece of iron being slung at you. I'm imagining he's quite accurate with it. What we have here at the onset of the story is psychological warfare. Goliath knew that he was the 800-pound gorilla in the room. He knew how to throw his weight around. He says to the people of Israel in verse 10, I heap shame on the ranks of Israel. And it worked. Verse 11 says, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This is not Goliath's first rodeo. Already as you're reading chapter 17, First uh, Samuel 16, 7 should be screaming at you. Do you remember what the text said there? That man looks at what? You can talk to me this morning. Appearances. We look at the external. We look at the outside. And God looks at the heart. Now, granted, there is a little bit of logic at play here, right? If Goliath is nine foot six inches and you're five two, you might think to yourself, if I go toe to toe with this guy, I'm probably not going to win that fight. But here's the thing. Even though Goliath is a soldier on steroids, what man thinks is strong is not what God thinks is strong. Think about the Word of God for a minute. If you've spent any time in the Word of God, you've probably come across a passage like this. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or you might have heard a passage like this. Be strong and courageous. In fact, all over the Bible, it tells us not to fear. Why? Because fear will never advance your life of faith. It will never cause you to live the life of faith that God's calling you to live. That's why Paul said to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.7, God has not given you a spirit of fear. But what kind of spirit? One of power, of love, of sound mind. You see, those three things will cause you to live the life of faith that God's calling you to lead. Love, power, sound mind. Fear will prevent you from those three things. Because fear replaces power with weakness, love with self-interest, and sound mind with irrationality. Have you ever asked yourself, am I living, operating out of fear? I think that's a good and important question to ask in the life of faith, and I want to challenge you that you can ask yourself three questions that will help you to get to the heart of that. One question you can ask is, do I trust that God is in control of this situation? That's power. Another question is, am I concerned for those around me, or am I just simply self-preserving? Am I self-protecting? And does that concern manifest itself in actions? That's love. 
And the final question is, are my actions consistent with sound biblical wisdom? That is, of course, sound mind. Now, clearly, Israel and Saul are not practicing faith in this story. You see, Goliath's psychological warfare has devastated the ranks of Israel before the first sword is drawn. And Saul, the king of Israel, was supposed to stand at the front of the army and and take this, this challenger on man to man. But instead, he seeks to preserve his own skin. And what happens to Israel? Israel becomes a people at a standstill. And I want to suggest that God never calls us to be a people at a standstill. He wants us to advance His gospel and His glory throughout the world. So now we move the story along. We shift the lens of the camera. We have Goliath defying the ranks of Israel. And we go back to a shepherd boy, a young David, a king who is not even invited to the fight. In verse 13, we learn that three of David's brothers have been called to the battle. That's Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. If you cross-reference that with Numbers 1-3, we, we understand why only three of the sons have been called to battle because Numbers 1-3 says that a man had to be at least 20 years of age in order to enter into the battle. So let's do the math for just a second. David's the eighth brother. Three brothers can go to the battle. That means that David quite likely is somewhere around the age of 13 right now. A young guy. In fact, in verse 33, when Saul looks at him, he says, you are but a youth. So this is the matchup that is starting to form. You have Goliath, the champion among champions with the Philistines, and David, the young buck who's not even invited to the fight. Again, 1 Samuel 16, 7, screaming out at us. You're so consumed with appearances. It's not all about appearances. Appearances have nothing to do with the things of God. So David has to get to the battle. He wasn't invited, but somehow he has to hear Goliath's challenge. Well, the next part of the story tells us that Jesse gives him a job to do. Take these provisions to your brother. Bring it to the camp. He does that. As he leaves, he hears the battle cry, or as he arrives, he hears the battle cry, and his curiosity gets the better of him. So he takes the provisions, gives them to the keeper, and he goes to the front of the battle to see his brothers. Now it's here that he just so happens to hear Goliath issue his challenge. And he's scandalized as he watches what happens next. Verses 24 and 25 All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, I want you to see something here. This is a Bible pro tip. Whenever you read about a character in the Bible, it's very, very, very important to closely look at the first words that that Bible character speaks. Oftentimes in Hebrew narrative, that's a a literary device to help us understand like the makeup of a person, their character, who they are. 
This, this Hebrew writing was terse, meaning they used word economy. They didn't use paragraphs to describe something. It was often through either dialogue or just a, a quick reference to a person's name or character, and that would be all they say. Why? Well, it's because they didn't have like writing in, in implements like we have today so accessible. So if you had something to write, it had better be very, very important, and you had to better say it as succinctly as possible. And I got to tell you, I think we could learn something from this. I mean, I've read books that are like 240 pages that could have been said in two sentences. It's terrible. It's a waste of my time. So look at what David says. These are his first words. We're looking at verses 26 and 27. He says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now, think about David's words. Remember, up to this point, the armies of Israel are fixated on one thing, external appearances. That's the only consideration that has been made up to this point. He's nine foot, six inches tall, He has the most technologically advanced armor and weapons of war, and plus, everything is plus-sized right now. We don't want to go fight this guy. The worldview that David is expressing, though, is entirely different. He doesn't make mention of any of those factors. Up to this point in the story, the story has been godless. There's been no mention made of God. But now... David says, and he asks the right question. He says, does having the living God on your side make a difference at all? Does it make a difference at all? No, does it? Does it make a difference in your life? Does it make a difference with things like COVID-19? Does it make a difference with the fears that you carry for your children as you think about their future? Does it make any difference about your personal fears that you carry? Like, I want to be perceived as good enough, whether it involves a relationship with your parents or family members like siblings or your friend's circle, or maybe you want to be viewed as good enough at work. Does it make a difference when you receive a medical diagnosis that appears grim or someone you love does? Does having a living God matter? Now, I want to submit to you this morning that there are only ever two worldviews at work in the world. Now, you might think to me, well, that's a little reductionistic. There's a lot of worldviews at work in the world, but I'm telling you, I think there's only two. Now, the first worldview is this, God's presence does not matter. The other worldview says God's presence is the only thing that matters. Now those who hold to the first worldview, and here's a little clue, you could be a person of faith operating out of the first worldview. Those who operate out of the first worldview, they're relying on themselves. My power my skills, my talent, my intellect, my abilities. 
that I know how to get things done kind of mentality. This is Saul in this story. He's tall, he's handsome, everyone looks at Saul and they think this guy is the right guy for the job. He's the man who should be king. But here's the problem. When you rely on your strength, your talent, your abilities, your smartness, your fitness, whatever it is, there is always a Goliath out there. There's always someone out there who is taller, smarter, handsomer, better equipped, whatever factor right now that we think is so important, right? So the story is telling us, look, if you are basing your worldview on this reality that you can get things done on your own, you're going to hit a brick wall, his name's Goliath, and he's going to send you running away in fear. You will have nothing when you hit that brick wall. We're reading the 21 days of prayer right now, and I hope that you're following along. And on day four, we prayed through the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes are one of my favorite sections of Scripture. I love it because Jesus says, blessed are those. And when you really get down to the heart of it, we all want to experience a life that's called blessed. We want to feel that our life has significance, purpose. We want to know in the depths of our soul that we have joy. We want to feel this sense of well-being that comes along with meaning in our world. Now, the world's beatitudes would be something like this. Blessed are those who are powerful, talented, have position, are performers, have potential. But Jesus' Beatitudes read like this, Blessed are they poor, mourning, meek, hungry and thirsty, merciful, pure, peacemakers, persecuted. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I wasn't aspiring for that list. But Jesus is saying, the bottom line here is this person that represents those qualities that person's God-dependent. And the God-dependent person says, I don't bring anything to the table. I wholly rely upon Him. Sometimes we feel a little ashamed because people outside of the faith will say things like, well, your faith for you is a crutch. It's a crutch. You lean on it. You use it when, when things are going poorly for you. It's, it's just a crutch. It's an emotional crutch. And I've got to tell you, they are mischaracterizing faith. Faith is not a crutch. Faith is life support. Because when you look at what Jesus is saying here in the Beatitudes, you realize, I'm not someone that's just leaning on God. No, I am like a critical patient fixed to a respirator. I need him for everything in my life. Well, David, the rightful king, understood this. It was his starting point for how he approached the, one of the biggest problems he would ever face in all of his life. Does having a living God matter? Of course it does. As we move along in this story, you're going to see that you'll seldom receive praise for suggesting that God is the solution to the problem. 
See, even as David is brilliantly the first to acknowledge God's presence, he's going to be challenged face to face with this notion three times. In fact, I want to submit to you that David meets two Goliaths before he meets the third Goliath. As he goes from the battle or from hearing the challenge, his first critic is his own brother. brother. His brother Eliab says, essentially, you're too bratty. He says that in verse 28. Look at what he says there. Why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. Now obviously, receiving a criticism like that from a family member as you're trying to live by faith stings. It stung David. Of course it did. But Jesus said that this comes along with the life of faith. Wasn't it Jesus who said that the prophet is not without honor except for when he's in his own hometown, amongst his own relatives, in his own household? As you follow Jesus, sometimes your worst critics will be your own family. Some of them will say things like, Hey, I hear you say that you're following Jesus now, but I remember back when you did and fill in whatever the blank was. Or they look at the decisions that you're making right now and they say, you're wasting your talent because you're giving so much of your time and your energy and focus in this life of faith. And if you would just take that time and energy and talent and use it here, you could be successful. Listen, That comes with following Jesus. Are you willing to face the criticism? I haven't seen this before, but this is what I see in the story of David and Goliath now. We have to realize that you're going to face serious adversity. And it's not just when he meets Goliath. He's facing adversity before he gets to Goliath. Look at the second criticism. It comes from Saul. Saul says, you are too green. Now, David is questioning people around the camp, saying, why is it that this giant is standing up saying these things? Saul hears about it, and he calls for David to come to his tent. And it's here that David says, Saul, I'm your guy. I'll go fight the giant right now. Saul's response in verse 33, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. Now answer this question. Is God constrained by factors such as age? Is he? Now, you would think that we think he is because when it comes to how we credential things and how we evaluate things, we have factors such as education and experience and, yes, even factors such as age. Now, there may be a wisdom to that sometimes as we go about doing a job search. But when it comes to the call of God upon a person's life, age is not the constraining factor. It's not the end-all, be-all. I mean, God is called... People at all different spectrums across the age spectrum to do great things for him. Sometimes they're very, very young. 
Remember what Paul said to Timothy? He said, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. I love when I look out in the church and I see young leaders, aspiring leaders, taking on significant responsibility. And I think a wise church recognizes that and wants for the young leaders to step up. Let's, as they like to say, the young eagles fly. It's important. But think about the other end of the spectrum. Some people say I'm too old. Well, as I read the Bible, I've come to the realization that it doesn't matter how old you are. God can work his purposes out through you, and his purposes are bigger than you, so age is not your limiting factor. No, the limiting factor is trust because what God calls you to do is always bigger than you are. So the only way you're going to get it done is by trusting him. And David recognizes this. I love how he responds to Saul. He says in verses 34 and 35, he says, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from his flock... I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. But notice that David didn't believe these things happened as a result of his own skill and bravery. No, the Bible says that he saw God in, in, in all of it. Look at verse 37. It says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So he's not some cocksure youth. He's confident in God because he's seen God at work. And this is the principle now that's emerging. Looking back in faith enables you to look forward in faith. When you look back and you see the things that God has done, when you're facing adversity in the present moment, you can be confident that God will show up again. I have to say this, I've never been face to face with a lion or a bear, but I'm imagining it's pretty terrifying because, you know, one time I was at the zoo and a bear cage was right over here and I was standing behind the glass, the bear pounced at me and I was ready to run for my life. David says, I've stood up to these things, and I did that with God's help. So the logical conclusion in his mind is, then I can probably stand against this giant too if God wants me to do that. I love what Dale Ralph Davis says. He says, the rich history of God's past goodnesses nurtures faith in its current dilemma. It is here that memory and logic, so memory, remembering, logic, connecting the dots, can be made the handmaids of faith. If God did this, then he can do that. So I love hearing stories from our own church's history. That story that Paul shared of that young woman, the church having foresight to say, you know, it would be good for a search committee if we put someone from the youth into that search committee process. And then, obviously, God working in this young lady's heart, coming to the realization that this church hasn't been faithful to the Word of God and, and we need to get back on track. And what's the result? 
70 years of a church being steeled in its commitment for the gospel. Now, what I love about that story is, again, if God did things like that then, He's still the same God today. He's still working today. He can still do those things today. So whether you're 13 years old, 30 years old, or 100 years old, an important faith practice is to remember. Remember. Do you take time to remember? If you're a note taker, write this one down. Remember key faith turning points. Remember key faith turning points. Look back in your life and think about those times when there's no other explanation other than God's faithfulness and God's goodness in your life. Write those things down in a journal. Spend time with friends, spiritual friends, whom you can share your God stories with and you can hear their God stories. Allow those interactions to jog your faith memory. When you do that, of course, he'll give you new courage for today, for what he's doing today. Well, let's turn our attention to the final critic. This is Goliath. And, you know, Goliath, we'd expect for his criticism to be nothing different than what he says to David, that you are too puny. Now, verse 42 says that when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance, totally unimpressed with David. The guy's offended, like, what are they doing sending out this little runt, this little pipsqueak to come fight me? Don't they know who I am? I mean, I'm the guy that picks things up and puts them down. I, Goliath, smash. I will grind him to bone dust. And not only do they send out this little ruddy youth, but the Bible story tells us that David brings a butter knife to a gunfight. He, he tries on Saul's armor. And this stuff doesn't work out for me. I'm not used to these kind of things. So instead, he relies on his shepherding implements, his staff, his sling, five smooth stones from a brook, as David is like confidently marching through the camp, approaching Goliath, you know what everyone's thinking. They're thinking, that guy's dead. D-E-D, -D, dead. He is dead. I'm not stupid. I spelt that wrong on purpose. Now, this is no way, this in no way means that he went to the battle unarmed. I mean, the stones are about the size of a tennis ball, a skilled sharpshooter. He could sling those things upwards of 100 to 150 miles per hour. But here's the thing. The optics don't look good, right? Goliath insults his weapon. He curses David by his gods. He threatens to kill him. He says, I'm going to dishonor your corpse. I'm going to leave your body out. I'm going to let the birds pick the flesh off the bones. It's pretty gruesome. I don't know if I would want to go have that fight. But listen to David's words. They're brilliant. Verses 45 to 47. He says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You see, David understood this principle. What matters is not whether you have the best weapons, but whether you have the real God. That's always the case. And whether you're standing up against a Goliath or facing some other challenge, God's existence is the difference maker. The real victory in your Christian life is when you let God's presence invade all of your life. And not when you just kind of compartmentalize God and say, you know, I'll give God some of my time here, some of my attention here, but his presence isn't going to inform the rest of my life. That's not the difference maker. It's allowing him to have it all. It's the ultimate deciding factor. Now, we might look at the things that God calls us to do and say, I'm too weak for that. And I say to that, good. Now you're ready for God to use you. Because weakness is not a bad thing. Sometimes God is making inadequacy just the qualification so that he can use you. Because remember, he gets more glory when he works through your weakness, not through your strength. I remember a story that I read this week that really touched my heart. It's a story from the early church. It's a young woman. She's pregnant with child. She's been arrested, and she's going to be put to death very soon. Now, the day before her execution, she goes into labor. She cries out in pain because I have it on good authority that labor is very painful. And the jailer, listening to her cry from her room, mocks her. And he says through the jail cell, well, if you make this much noise today, how much more noise are you going to make tomorrow? Her reply was incredible. She said, today I suffer what is ordinary and have only ordinary assistance. Tomorrow I am to suffer what is more than ordinary and shall hope for more than ordinary assistance. And as you read the story in church history, she was given more than ordinary assistance because she had more than ordinary faith. That's the difference maker. When we approach God's work in our weakness, you're not bringing a butter knife to a gunfight. You are bringing an all-wise, all-powerful God to a gunfight. And then it becomes a no contest. In fact, as this story unravels, you see that it is a no contest. I love how this story, the story, the collision between David and Goliath is only two verses. Two verses! All of this dialogue, it's like 
pre-WWE wrestlers, like, I'm big and strong. No, I'm big and strong. All of this exchange, and then when you get down to the real fight, two verses. David runs, David slings, Goliath dies. End of story for him, right? And as he goes on, it tells us that he cuts off his head, routes the Philistines, It's all so simple and seamless because the Bible wants you to see it's a no contest because God is on David's side. Now, I want us to examine the irony of all of this as we close out the chapter. The last verses read like this, verses 55 to 58. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner says, as my soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, well, inquire whose son the boy is. As soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now look at the irony, right? As we've said, David's been anointed. David is a king without a crown. He is an unknown quantity. He has a call, but no one knows really who he is. Whose son is this youth? A remarkable question considering the fact that in the story previous, Saul has made David his armor bearer, but David hasn't even registered enough in his mind at this point for him to really know who David is or who his father is. Yet, David shows up and he turns everything upside down. Now, how is it that the king without a crown shows more levels of greatness than the king who physically has the crown on his head? How? The answer is vision. It's vision. You don't have to have a crown to be a leader, but you do have to have vision. Over the years, the big idea of the story of David and Goliath has been expressed like this. Now, I want to warn you, I'm going to suggest that this is the wrong big idea, so don't start amening when I say these things. Now, typically, when we hear this story, we hear, the story of David and Goliath is about facing your giants. If you would just face your giants and trust God with your giants, then you can overcome the obstacles you face. You don't have to allow the bullies in your life to walk all over you. You can face your fears. You can jump over barriers. And then we start getting really outlandish, like, hey, if you have a fear of bungee jumping or something like that, well, with God's help, you can take the plunge. Or, you know, you've got that big job interview coming up, and if you just put your trust in David, uh, in God like David did, then you'll go in and you'll slay that giant today. Now, I'm not telling you that the story is saying we don't need to trust in God. Of course, we need to trust in God, but we're missing the real vision of this story if my big takeaway from this story is that I can face that job interview. See, that version of the story makes the story anthropocentric. 
not theocentric. And any time I make the Bible about me and not about God, I am misinterpreting the Bible. It is whose story? It's his story, not my story. So what then is 1 Samuel 17 really about? Well, you come to understand the meaning when you get the key word of the story. Six times the Hebrew root harap is repeated in the story. And that word means to reproach, to defy, to mock, to deride. So Goliath's challenge goes beyond the realm of mere bullying. He's essentially saying to Israel, you are wrong for following God. I mock your God. I challenge your God. And David is the first one to walk upon the scene and see that this is a big problem and I need to stand up against this. He's taking direct aim at our God. So it's not about David's courage. It's about God's name, his reputation, his glory. If you catch David's vision, it'll change your Christian life. And his vision is this, the people of God should be driven by a passion for the honor of God. Does that drive you? Do you care when God's name is defamed? As you look out the problems that exist in the world, do you want the problems to go away so that your life can be a little more comfortable? Or do you want to attack those problems because you want to see God made much of in wherever it is that you're going? You look at church history, anyone in church history who ever did anything for God, man or woman, was driven by this vision. They cared about his name, his reputation, his honor. They weren't courageous because they were, you know, brave unlike the rest of us. No, they faced fear because they believed God's name and reputation was worth the risk. You see, God's honor will drive you to do things you never thought you could do. It will drive you into the community, to have a heart for the community, to love the community. If you go into the community because your conscience is pricked a little bit and you think, oh, you know, I just don't like thinking of toys without, with tots without toys, you'll go out and you'll volunteer a couple of times, but you won't be consistent with that. But if you go into the community and you say, I'm driven by God's name and reputation. I want to see people have their needs met and be cared for because God loves people. And I love people because He loves people. That'll change everything. That'll change your consistency. If you care about issues like justice in the world, like you hear about things like human trafficking and some of those kind of things, you know, you hear people say, I'm concerned about those things, but they do nothing about it, right? Well, it's because they don't have a real vision compelling them other than they want to be seen as saying the right things at the right time. But if you care about God's honor, well, that changes everything because he's a God of justice. When something's wrong, he wants it to be made right. And I want to be driven in my care and concern for justice because God is concerned for these things. Or what about loving others? 
Jesus' great commandment. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. If I'm driven by God's honor, it's not just about the church being this space where we have squishy, relatable relationships. No, it's when people from the outside look in this place and they see us fighting with one another, Jesus, his name is defamed. And I'm not okay with that. Or holiness. Giving up sinful patterns. Not because somehow in my willpower I have the ability to do that, but because the Bible says, be holy for who is holy. I am holy. You see, you can't face your giants for your own cause. Your cause is small and it's limited. God's cause is eternal. It's universal. When I go into my cause, I go into my cause with my power. When I go into God's cause, I go into that cause with the power of the limitless one working through me. That's why a shepherd boy could become Israel's greatest king. And that's why the Bible says if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you'll be compelled by God's glory. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Let's ask God to drive us. Lord, today we've looked at your word and I thank you for it and I thank you for the vision that we see in David's life. Here is a man who was driven to defend your glory, your honor, your name, your reputation. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I know, Lord, that that's my call too. To live for the sake of Jesus' glory, for His purposes, for His kingdom. That's what I want to be driven by, Lord. That's what I want motivating me as I serve You. We know that You're greater than we are. We know that Your purposes are greater than our purposes. So lead us, Lord. Compel us. Do Your work in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.